You're listening to Business in Vancouver's Women in Business podcast series, brought to you by UBC Sauter School of Business. Over four weeks, we're highlighting four women and four exemplary stories of leadership. Every week, I explore a wide range of topics with a new guest. Throughout the series, we'll cover female leadership, how to lead in politics, the fallout from Me Too, economic reconciliation, and how successful women manage risk. I'm Haley Wooden. I hope you enjoy this episode. McLean's Magazine named UBC Sauter the number one business school in Canada for 2018. But UBC Sauter is about more than just accolades. As a student, you'll learn how to make a difference not only in your career, but in the broader community. That's what true leadership is all about. To learn more, visit SauterChallenge.ca. My guest today is the Honorable Janet Austin, Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia. Her honor was sworn in as the province's 30th Lieutenant Governor in April 2018. Prior to her appointment, she spent 15 years as CEO of YWCA Metro Vancouver, one of BC's largest nonprofits. Additionally, she has served as chair of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade and on the boards of TransLink, Mosaic, the Women's Health Research Institute, and the Council for Early Child Development, among many others. She is the recipient of numerous awards and honors. She's the Chancellor of the Order of British Columbia and a member herself. And she joins me in studio today. Thank you so much for joining the show. Oh, well, thanks, Haley. I'm delighted to be here. What have you enjoyed most about your role so far? Oh, gosh. Um, it's been fascinated. It's uh, fascinating. Um, I, I think I'd have to say the opportunity to meet so many people who are working hard in different ways and making an, an enormous contribution to our province and the communities in it. So that's been wonderful experience. Um, I've also had the privilege uh, just last week of returning from London, England, where I had an audience, a private audience, my husband and I with Her Majesty the Queen, uh, which was a marvelous um, experience, I have to say. Wow. How long were you with Her Majesty? Um, we were with her for about half an hour. And um, I can confirm that everything that is said about her is absolutely true. You know, since since meeting her, when I hear God Save the Queen, I have to admit it makes me feel a little bit emotional because the words that are used to describe her are absolutely accurate. You know, she is gracious and noble and happy and glorious, you know. So it really, it was very interesting to have that experience of chatting with her. We talked about many, many issues economic and social issues. And she also talked about her love of Canada. Um, She has very strong memories of being here, um, has had a number of visits to Government House, asked after the volunteers that maintain the garden, and so just showed herself to be both gracious, uh, curious, um, and a very, very hospitable host. You're in such an interesting role because I think everyone would be familiar likely with the role of lieutenant governor, but the last time we maybe talked about a constitutional monarchy would have been in high school or something, and you have the opportunity to really engage in that in such a different way. Yes. Was there anything about the role that surprised you when you when you first stepped into it? You know, I think I had a, a pretty accurate understanding of what the role would be. You know, there is, of course, the constitutional responsibility. There's a, a ceremonial responsibility as well. You have the privilege of honoring many British Columbians in different walks of life. Um, and then I do also have the opportunity to bring profile to certain themes that I would like to champion. I would say, however, that um, the constitutional role, I think, 
um, has gained greater prominence in terms of public awareness uh, for a variety of reasons. But our constitutional monarchy is also a, st- a, sta- um, a steadying rudder, I think, that connects us outward to the Commonwealth, um, but has been flexible enough to accommodate major reforms, such as the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, for example. And it has provided a kind of stability, a connection to a tradition of parliamentary democracy, equality before the law, these things that really define our, our country and and distinguish it from many of the countries around the world. So I think the kind of relative peace and stability that we enjoy here in Canada does is different than what we see emerging in many republic contexts. Has being in this role given you a different appreciation of that? Absolutely. And, and, and I would say it's deepened my appreciation mm. of it. Let, let me put it like that. And I think just given what I would characterize as the fragility of democracy in the current global context, it is something that's greatly to be valued. I, uh, I feel a responsibility to help um, raise awareness and better understanding of of the value of a constitutional monarchy and and the the strength it really brings to our country having a differentiation between um, government and 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 state. For those who don't know what what is encompassed by the role of lieutenant governor, give me a sense of what your role involves responsibility wise. Sort of day to day. Yeah. <laughs> If there is such a thing as a typical yeah. Well, there isn't really. There's a lot of variation in, in my schedule. And I think that, uh, you know, that, but there was previously as well. Um, but but I guess, you know, the primary things are the constitutional responsibility. So, you know, I have the privilege of, um, of um, delivering, for example, the throne speech. Um, I need to attend the legislature to give what's called royal assent to major bills that are approved in the legislature. So I have done that several times and I will be doing that again, uh, I think tomorrow actually. Um, so periodically I will attend the legislature for functions like that. Um, I am required to sign all the orders in council and all major bills that are that are passed in the legislature. So that requires um, um, a, a bit of time and, and coordination and effort. Um, I do spend a lot of time uh, public speaking, as you can appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of that relates to the ceremonial role where you are honoring people for their many different accomplishments. Um, but there's also the opportunity to, you know, to attend and, and bring profile to um, organizations that are really doing excellent work in the community um, and to show support. Um, the role also, it's different from what I've done in the past in that um, the opportunity to have an impact has a lot to do with communication, our ability to you know, perhaps um, enhance our, our digital presence, I think is very important. Um, but also it's a symbolic role in many ways. So when I think about uh, Government House, which is a absolutely beautiful sort of ceremonial home for, for all British Columbians, uh, I want to make sure that we have an inclusive approach to how we use Government House, that we welcome people into Government House, and that we use some of the assets we have there in, in a symbolic way to say that inclusion is important. So a few things that we've been doing is um, I've invited the YMYWCA to offer um, fitness classes for seniors in the pool in the summertime. Mm. 
um, we are going to be working with a group of, of, of teen mothers, um, and our chef will be teaching them how to cook some simple, inexpensive, nutritious meals. Uh, we've also been taking uh, produce from the farm garden and delivering it to an organization in Victoria that feeds people. So these are symbolic gestures, but I think that they send a message about what's important in society. And I'm privileged to be in a position where I can do that. So what are your priorities then? I mean, you've spent so much of your life as, a, as an advocate of specifically working to and championing the causes of women and girls. How much flexibility do you have to sort of continue that work? Yeah. Um, well, I have three themes that I would like to emphasize during my term. And the first will be no surprise. It really is just a continuation of work that I've done previously. So it's that whole frame around social justice, equality, inclusion, diversity, pluralism, and gender equality. And that, I think, can be executed in a number of different ways. But um, I also have the privilege of serving as a patron to many organizations. So a number of the organizations I've had a long association with have reached out and asked if I would do that. So, for example, the Big Sisters organization. Of course, I'm you know, still deeply tied to the YWCA. Um, I will be giving a keynote address at the um, We for She event, which is coming up um, um, soon. So having the opportunity to attend and to speak to some of these issues in a way that's appropriate for the lieutenant governor will be my way of continuing to, um, you know, to bring profile and, and serve some of these really important issues in society. So that's that's one area. Um, I'm part of that would be uh, well. The second area is um, is reconciliation, and I have had uh, I think a personal commitment to attempting to advance reconciliation through my previous work, and I think you do see that in the work of the YWCA. But it's also important um, as a way to build on the legacy of the previous lieutenant governors, uh, so Her Honor Judith Gishan, Iona Campanola, and also Stephen Point all. Um, all managed to make progress in that respect. And I feel a responsibility um, to continue their really splendid work. So we're looking at a number of things there. Um, we held a wonderful back-to-school Indigenous picnic this summer for 1,200 kids. Um, we will be uh, launching a reconciliation award. Um, I am actually doing the welcome tonight at the uh, 2018 Massey Lectures, which honors uh, Tanya Talaga uh, mm -hmm. for her work. Uh, so there's various ways that we can do that. We're also looking at, at uh, perhaps designing a reconciliation garden at Government House. So there's there's quite a range of, of um, opportunities there. Um, it's also important to me to honor the work of um, First Nations in um, their uh, retaining their culture and their language. And I um, we've reached out to the First Nations People's Cultural uh, Council um, to s request that we might perhaps put together a, a group of um, lessons, essentially. I'd, I'd like to make an effort to learn a little bit of basic Lekwungen, which is the primary language in Victoria, in mm -hmm. the Victoria community. Um, and it's uh, important, I think, to be able to do a proper greeting. And so I'd like to ask some other provincial leaders to participate in that with me. So again, these things are symbolic, but I think they send an important message. And then my third um, uh, area is um, the whole theme around democracy, which fits, I think, very appropriately with the role of the constitutional monarchy. 
So in common with many people, I find myself increasingly concerned about the erosion of respect for our democratic conventions and the public institutions that support them and the erosion of civility in, in public discourse, um, the lack of understanding of the importance of a free press. These things I, I think are very important to me and I feel compelled to use my role, I think, as a way to encourage respect for the systems we have in place that ensure the stability uh, of our country and, and the freedom of the people that have the privilege of, of being citizens. Without getting into the <clears throat> policy side of things, when it comes to something like supporting the values of our democracy, supporting yeah. a free press, how do you think we get back on track? Maybe it's a bit of a different situation yeah. in Canada, but generally speaking, how do you think it's, we get there? It's, um, it's an important question. Um, I think that the most important thing we can do is to work with young people um, to help them to understand the value of the democratic um, uh, institutions and conventions that we have. And so I think that means looking to how we can connect with schools, uh, with universities, and frankly, with the younger demographic. It means encouraging people to exercise their franchise and to do what we can to help people to understand the value of the vote that, that they, they have the privilege of having. Uh, which many people around the world don't have, and to also help them understand that your vote does count, and you can see that in the results of a lot of recent elections. So how we engage people constructively in a nonpartisan or a cross-partisan way um, and encourage them to participate actively. So that's one area. Um, so we're in discussions about various opportunities. One might be, for example, a... Um, uh, an essay, video, or art competition for students where we might ask them to, um, you know, to prepare a presentation on what are the characteristics of, an, of a society that functions well and why, you know. So that will require some work and, and time to execute. We'll also be hosting the uh, international schools debates uh, which are uh, hosted really by the Trust for Sustainable Living, which um, is an organization that works out of Cambridge. So I have been meeting with them really recently. I met with them when we were in London, uh, and that will be here in July. So it will be a privilege to host that. It will be a way to bring together um, international students with local students, and again, around developing skill in, deba in, in debate and discussion, but also understanding the conventions of, of um, you know, of democracy um, and how, how decisions are made. So there are also opportunities to work with the youth parliament, for example. Mm -hmm. I'm really impressed with them. Um, and, and frankly, the universities, um, a number of the universities have reached out, having heard that this is an area of interest and, and, uh, I, and there's, there's various things I think we can do to align around public dialogue sessions and also uh, encouraging student engagement. Mm -hmm. A recent UBC Sauter study indicated women directors negotiate better deals in mergers and acquisitions. What will you achieve in business? Time to unlock your potential at UBC Solder. UBC Solder offers many career tracks along with scholarships just for women. To learn more and apply, visit solderchallenge.ca.
You mentioned universities, student engagement. Yeah. I'm curious too, in your time at, at the Y and on the boards that you sat on, I mentioned, you really had, it seemed, one foot firmly planted in the nonprofit world, but then one solidly planted in the business world as well. And that, that's a good example sort of of bridging two worlds that sometimes operate in silos. Do you think there's a role that the business community at large can can play in some of these initiatives? Absolutely. I think it's always been important to me to do my part to reach out to different parts of the economy and society where I may not have, as you would characterize it, a foothold. Um, I think if we're only ever talking to ourselves or people who share our views, that's not going to take us very far. So it's extremely important that we reach out and try to engage with people whose views are in fact different and and find ways to find common ground and, and hopefully to build some trust. Um, people would often say to me, they would say, well, why, why is Janet... Uh, uh, chairing the board of trade because she's a you know social justice advocate, um, but what many people didn't realize I think was that the YWCA is a very well functioning social enterprise that runs a number of uh, uh, related businesses that are larger, frankly, and 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 more profitable than many of the businesses that actually comprise the membership of the board of trade. The only difference is is that the the proceeds are driven back into the community and support. Um, things that are difficult to raise money for. So there's a lot of, I think, discipline um, and, um, you know, operational skill in that organization that's really no different from a well-functioning private sector or public sector entity. And I think nonprofit organizations need to learn to um, capture that ground in the way they describe themselves. So there's there's less of a you know there's less of a differentiation I think than many people you know might might assume. Um, I also think it's important though that we look at our economy and our our the social cohesion in society that supports the, uh, an effective economy. We need to understand the interrelationship and the linkages, and to see that it's not just the economy, that the economy functions well when our society functions well. And I think the Board of Trade has actually done very good work in that respect when you look at things like the economic scorecard, which looks at both economic and social measures and, and um, um, you know, basically measures the effectiveness of the jurisdiction here in, in Metro Vancouver um, against other other jurisdictions that are of a similar size and characteristics. So, so uh, that has always been important to me, and I continue. I, I intend to continue to do it in my current role. Do you think, as a as a community and society, we're getting better at doing that, at breaking down those barriers and blending the the strictly economic with the social? I, I do think so. Actually, I do think that's true. Uh, I think people have a much better understanding, and I think business. You see, this has become much more important to successful and viable businesses, where they recognize that in order to attract employees, um, we need to have a livable environment. Things like housing affordability are key. Access to good quality education for their children. Frankly, access to things like childcare and early learning, uh, early learning for those children. Those can be key decision points for for companies that want to locate here and key decision points for employees that want to work here. So understanding those those relationships is is fundamental. And I would say I think the Board of Trade and, and business in Vancouver, I think, has done a very good job of of modeling that um, and and shining a positive light on that for your audiences. You mentioned that in your role now it's really deepened your understanding of of our democracy and our values here in Canada. From your time at the helm of the YWCA, what 
what deepened your understanding on on what issues? What do you feel your your takeaways were after a decade? Oh, and from a half? the YWCA, it was such a privilege uh, to do that role for so many years. Uh, what was wonderful about it? I mean, there were so many things that are that are wonderful about that organization, but there's a very broad strategic frame, um, and I think that that was very good decision on the part of the board and the executive team there um, because it's given the organization the opportunity frankly to respond when opportunistically um, when when um, you know when an opportunity emerges you know um, and so there's not the expectation that you in you know necessarily make progress on everything you know every year but there's an understanding that these are the things as an organization we want to work on and 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 you're able to execute and to follow up when opportunities emerge in the landscape so i um i would say that i learned so much from the ywca there's no question about it what i find though i think so many of the issues that we deal with um, both socially and economically, I guess my big takeaway would be how they are really inextricably interlinked, you know, that you really can't deal with these issues, major issues in society or the economy in isolation. You need to think about um, about how, you know, how they link with each other, but also the impact they have on people generally. Um it's also true, I think, when you look at this, the people who are served by the YWCA, um, the Y takes, a, I think, um, a wonderful approach of working holistically with people and attempting the, to surround them with a broad range of services um, that actually support them to successfully develop and execute a life plan that will take them to a different, a better place. Uh, and again, it's that interrelationship, I think, that's... that's um, really fundamental to the success of the YWCA. There are so many conversations taking place now publicly, be it on gender equality, be it on inclusive mm -hmm. communities, take your pick, there's so many issues. Yeah. What are some of the conversations from your perspective you don't think we're talking about enough or that maybe we, we've lost our way on them and they need to be brought mm -hmm. back into the fold? Well, a couple of things that I worry about, frankly. Um, I worry about the um, fallout from the Me Too movement. Because we've had a profound shift, I think, in understanding. It's been a marvelous year in many respects. But um, I also see that our, our, our cultural norms are changing. That's a very positive thing. But there are many people who are confused and they're concerned. And so when you look at people in workplaces, they know that things are different but they don't know what is the appropriate thing to do now. And I think unless you actually provide people with an opportunity uh, and a safe space to have those kinds of discussions, then you're looking, you, you will see some backlash because people will be defensive. So something that I worked on before I left the YWCA was um, putting together a um, basically a training package um, which looks at what is current best practice in, in workplace culture around this whole issue of, of sexual harassment. Uh, and I think, and the idea was to put something together that would be open source, that could be used by really any organization who could benefit from it. Um, I think initiatives like that are really critical. And I think we need to take the whole discussion just from the superficial level of, you know, saying sexual harassment is bad or these mm -hmm. things qualify as sexual harassment, but to allow people to talk about things like, you know, can I compliment you on your necklace, you know, or your new haircut? 
is it appropriate to date somebody who is a colleague? Most people meet their, you know, meet their partners in a workplace context. So it's understanding how people can navigate those questions safely and to understand when what might be, you know, acceptable crosses that line, you know. Uh, So uh, these things need to be discussed and there's no... There's no right or wrong answer. I think in some cases it requires judgment and subtlety and nuance. But it's very important, I think, that we have this um, discussion at a deeper level. And then I think the progress that we've seen will actually take hold in a permanent way. Mm-hmm. You're right, because it is the it is the follow-up that's important. You have the hashtag, there's awareness yeah. raised. Yeah. But then how do you actually begin to build change that might take, frankly, quite a long period of time when you're talking about organizations and yeah. cultures reinventing mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah. I think also when we talk about reconciliation, I think much of that discussion is happening perhaps at an elite level. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it's very important that we look at what are kind of the systems approaches that will enable society really at all levels um, to embrace and understand the history of colonialism and what what it has actually meant for the circumstances for in, our indigenous peoples. So that's something else where I think you need a systemic approach, and you need to you know look at how that is manifest in major institutions, workplaces, universities. These are the organizations that I think have the potential to embed a reconciliation culture really across you know, across all platforms. So I find that, I find it incredibly inspiring and hopeful, but again, it needs to be navigated with, you know, with, with a great deal of care and with sensitivity. And you mentioned the importance of having that safe space. I wonder too, if sometimes people, they lack the vocabulary or feel they lack the vocabulary to properly engage I think I think that's absolutely true. Or they're afraid to engage because they're fearful of giving offense. Mm. And so having an opportunity to again talk through some of these questions, uh, I think can can um, make people much more more comfortable um, and enable them to actually reach out in a way that they might not be able to now. In talking about bringing shedding light on certain issues, that you've been a social advocate for so long, you're now in a role as we were talking about before we hit air that it's neutral. Yes. How yeah. has that changed for you? What yeah. can you do? What can't you do? And what was that process right. like? Right. Um, well, you know, I have never been politically involved. I've always been fascinated by politics and 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 followed with with tremendous interest. Um, but I have always worked hard to build positive relationships uh, across the partisan spectrum at all levels of government. And I think, I do believe that I've been successful at that. And I believe that that is part of my reputation and, and part of how people view me. So moving into a role that is um, explicitly neutral uh, is not such a big stretch. Um, the difference for me, frankly, is is even though I've worked hard to build cross-partisan support for foundational issues, um, I've never hesitated to kind of give my views about what should happen from a policy point of view. And in my role now, um, you know, I, I do need to be more circumspect um, and, and exercise more restraint. And that goes with the role. However, there are compensations. There's, um, it's a, an amazing platform to bring profile to issues that are important in society. Um, and I can use the evidence base to, to do that. Um, 
So there is that distinction there, um, but I'm quite comfortable with it, I think. And, and, and I obviously thought it through um, before I accepted the role. Mm-hmm. And you're the, the third woman to be appointed Lieutenant Governor in British Columbia, and you follow a long line of men who have held the role before you. What does that mean to you? Well, it, you know, it's interesting being, um, if, if, have you been to Government House? I have. Right. Yeah. Do, do you remember the main hallway at Government House mm-hmm. where there are portraits of all of the, the male lieutenant governors, mm-hmm. all wearing a uniform with very heavy gold braid, mm-hmm. most of them with a lot of facial hair? <laughs> <laughs> and and you realize it goes, you know, obviously, a lot of these are, are very mm-hmm. old. You yes. know? Um, and then you see, of course, um, the marvelous... Um, her honor, Iona Campanola, and of course, her honor, Judith Gishan. And uh, so, you know, one does have a sense of, of um, you know, being re- relatively few within that context. Um, but, um, but obviously, I'm, I'm pleased. It, it's a positive thing. Um, one thing that is kind of interesting, though, is I tell this joke sometimes that uh, when I start off events, um, because I will always have an aide de camp with me. And these are wonderful people. They're from various different uniformed service, so the police, the RCMP, emergency services, St. John Ambulance, uh, and they assist me in my role. But it's not, um, you know, not unusual for people to actually think the aide is the lieutenant governor, mm. right? Because the aide is in a uniform, and also generally they're male. They're not always, but most of them are male. And so people will sometimes come up and say, can we have a picture? And I get ready to have my picture taken. And then they give me the phone to take a picture of the aide. You know? So it's happened more than once, yeah. right? So there is something about that uniform. And it does say something, I think, about people's expectations uh, for the role. So it's a humorous moment. But in a way, it's also a teaching moment. Yeah. Well, and I think you could probably see that, too, for female CEOs who go through yes. that. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, so but, you know, um, I think... It is important um, positioning from a women's equality point of view. I think about this in relation to the queen as well, Mm. because she is really a remarkable example of of female leadership. Mm -hmm. And we don't often talk about her that way, but she is. And she's also, she's a symbol of grace, um, but she's also a symbol of restrained self-governing power. You think about her role in that respect and how those qualities of self-governance and restraint are missing in, in a lot of the, the sort of political leadership you see around the world. Mm-hmm. So I think from that, that, that we need to value and respect that quality or those qualities in her, uh, which are profoundly positive. Have you watched The Crown? Yes, of course. <laughs> I one thing that really struck me is she was so young, and not only was she a woman yes. in in a leadership role, but she was a young woman yes. in, a, in a very yeah. powerful position. And I, I wonder too, there's that that element of being graceful, being a leader as a young female, and that's maybe something that's relatable to to younger leaders today. I, I think it probably is. Um, I'm, I'm sure it is, and I I'm sure, uh, yeah, a- absolutely. I mean. I think that is must have been enormously difficult, mm-hmm. you know, enormously difficult. Um, and you realize how your your life is is really not your own, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I would sometimes tease my private secretary and say, "Well, I'm I'm going incognito, you know. I'm just Janet Austin today." And he'll say, "You're always the lieutenant governor." 
And, you know, it's important to be reminded of that because, in fact, it's true, you know? Mm-hmm. Has that fact changed your life? Um, not, 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 no. so, not so much, right? <laughs> I think, um, obviously, the, you know, the premier, the people who are in political roles where there is controversy around policy decisions they're making, um, there's a, a much higher degree of uh, security around them than there would be around me. For example, I do have security, mm-hmm. um, but I have a lot of uh, f- personal freedom as well, which I think is, is you know, is appropriate. Um, but I'm used to I'm used to walking everywhere. I you know, used to walk to work all the time, or mm-hmm. I take one of the Moby bikes and 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 ride home. Um, and it's a bit different because I am driven most places now. And um, you know how they have a child lock on cars. Mm-hmm. They have an LG lock on the, you know, <laughs> nobody wants me to open my own door. You know, they wait for somebody else to open it. So things like that are mm-hmm. different. Um, but, but you know, it's it's fine. And it's yeah. it's all part and parcel of the, you know, the, the respect and the protocol um, that goes with the role. Um, I'm a fairly informal person, but I also recognize that those aspects are very important to many people. And it's important to respect them. Mm-hmm. If we were to fast forward to sort of the, the end of your term, looking back, however long that ends up being, what do you want to be able to say you accomplished? Well, I hope that I would hope that I have been able to make some progress on those three themes mm-hmm. um, that I identified. Um, I would hope that I would be able to claim perhaps some. Um, encouragement, uh, greater encouragement for young people to participate actively in democracy, um, and a better understanding among British Columbians of the value of a constitutional monarchy and and the strengths that it really does bring to our country and our province. Your Honour, I'd like to thank you very much for joining me on this show. Thanks for coming in. Oh, thanks so much, Haley. It's been a delight talking to you. Thanks for listening to this installment of our Women in Business podcast series brought to you by UBC Sauter School of Business. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and tell us what you thought. You can find me and BIV on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. For all episodes in this series, visit BIV.com slash WIB. More audio content is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and at BIV.com slash audio. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks for joining me.